Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold. I've got a great show for you today. Dr. Greg Borgon's coming on in just a moment. We're going to talk about the heart. Proverbs 4.23 says, Above all else, guard your heart, for from it comes the wellspring of life. Then in the second hour, Pastor Robert Morgan, we're going to talk about the promise of our resurrected bodies. Ah, does that sound like a good good plan for the day? I can hardly wait to hear both. Always glad to have Greg Borgon on the show. He's the founder and president of Heart of a Warrior Ministries dot org. You can always learn more about him and his books and his blogs and all the things he does at his website, heartofawarrior.org. Hello, Greg. Hey, good to be here, Bill. I am looking forward to talking about heart surgery today. And I know the metaphor for heart is throughout the Bible, so we're going to talk about that. But to get things started, you had something else you wanted to discuss as well. Oh, you know, in my readings lately, I've come across this concept that's been prevalent, actually, uh, for two, three centuries, and it's called the secular-sacred divide, which means that we have a tendency to live in two stories. The upper story is our beliefs, our values— our Christianity, our morality, um, a very private thing. And the lower story is life in terms of uh, the practical side of life, what we do for a living, how we live once we uh, leave the doors of the church, um, how we engage our society around us. It has to do with science and reason. And so it's called the the uh, sacred-secular divide. Um I have felt all along, Bill, in light of our subject, that it's virtually impossible to behave differently from what we truly believe at the core of who we are, even though we might try to segment them, as I've just mentioned, in the upper story versus the lower story. There's no way that we can suppress them or dampen them or shove them back into the subconscious for an extended period of time and not have it in, had any have any effect on how we act or how we behave. Let me give a more practical example of that, is that uh, when I listen to politicians, especially when they're on the campaign trail, um, suggesting that they can govern without uh, reflection on what they believe, especially if it's brought up like it was uh, with one candidate that they were a Mormon, how are their Mormon beliefs not going to impact how they're going to govern or their Christian beliefs are not going to impact how they're going to govern. And the pronouncement from these politicians often is, well, no, that's a separate part of who I am, but I will, I will govern without uh, being influenced by those beliefs. That's virtually impossible because whoever you are at the core of your being will manifest itself in overt behavior over time that will either bring glory and honor to God or dishonor and shame to us. Mm -hmm. But there cannot be and will not be, no matter how long you persist on 
embracing a, an identity that's truly not your own, you'll be able to maintain that over an extended period of time. Because even at the moments of despair or discouragement or exhaustion, we'll always revert back to who we truly are at the core of our being. And so I believe that there's not a dotted line between what we truly believe and what we truly value at the core of who we are and how we behave. It's a solid line that can be suppressed for a short period of time, depending on your discipline and your focus. But ultimately, you are who you are. It's not what you do, as, as Neil Anderson used to say, it's not what you do that determines who you are. It's who you are that will determine what you do. And his point was, who you are in Christ will determine what you do. Mm -hmm. So there's a direct correlation with whatever the Bible refers to as the heart and what's stored there in our overt behavior over time. Mm -hmm. So if I understand the sacred-secular divide that you were just talking about, Greg, there is a private life that might be up top where you're holding your beliefs and values, and then there's maybe your public life, how you go about your everyday at the job, on the golf course, out with friends kind of thing. And what you're saying is those should be one. Yeah. Well, you can even you, you can even see the divide in the arguments that are currently rampant in our culture where somebody will say, well, your truth ends where my nose begins, or, or that's your truth. Mm-hmm. And so what they're doing is they're actually saying there's not a legitimate um, reason for you to resort to your beliefs because they don't hold the same authority as reason and logic uh, and and uh, whatever is the prevailing cultural attitude of the day. So in other words, they're saying, well, that's okay for you, and and that's okay for your own private life, but it doesn't hold sway in the public arena. Mm-hmm. And But the fact of the matter is, is that Christ has called us to glorify him in everything we do, not to compartmentalize what we, our beliefs or our values, and then to act differently or to suppress them when we're in society. Obviously, uh, we have to be careful about how we make a defense for the hope that's in it. We have to do it with gentleness. We have to do it with respect. Um, and there may be occasions when it's a hill that God doesn't want us to bleed on at the moment because it's not the right time. Um, or it may be a hill that uh, we haven't chosen to die on. In other words, we're not willing to give up our reputation or our job for the position. But there are some things that we are willing to die for mm-hmm. and that can't be compromised in any circumstance, under any situation. So anyway, the point being, Bill, is that what the Bible refers to as the heart, which is referred to over 986 times, in the uh, English Standard Version, um, and it it represents what we truly believe and what we truly value at the core of our being. Now, the reason why it's so important, just to refresh the memory of, of your listeners who may have been on the session we began uh, talking about the heart a, a few weeks ago, is that Proverbs 4.23, the passage that you quoted, uh, was a startling revelation to me when I was an executive pastor of a large church in San Diego. And I had identified 13 men originally to invest in, uh, given the authority by the senior pastor that once I was finished with them, that I'd be able to put them into positions of responsibility when I was done with them. And so 
the easiest thing to do when you're developing leaders is to focus on um, the objective things like procedures, strategies, methodologies, processes, those objective skills, competencies, talents, those kinds of things, and um, to train them in those. But what's harder to do is to deal with not just leadership competence, but leadership character. That's where the heart comes in about beliefs, values, attitudes, and motives. Because competencies may be the tools of effective leadership, but biblically informed character has always been the power Mm. of leadership. What were those things again? Beliefs? Values. Values. Attitudes. Attitudes. And and what? And motives. Motives. Now, when we look at that passage, it says, above all else, which means it's the highest priority, guard your heart, which means you have to be vigilant you have to be focused and you have to be disciplined because it says, above all else, guard your heart, for from it comes the wellspring of your life. So in other words, what it's saying is whatever is in there is going to gush out of you. Uh, no matter how you try to restrain it or constrain it in overt behavior, that may be honorable in some cases and dishonorable in others because of the incongruency between the components or whatever is in the heart, which we'll get to. And the, the reason why it's so important also is, is that if you remember when Samuel was sent down to the house or sent to the house of Jesse to anoint the next king because Saul had uh, sacrificed his um, kingship on the altar of expediency. So Samuel was sent to anoint the next king, the first son and that came across him, uh, his, his vision was Eliab, who had all the accoutrements of kingship, it was... Um, had the stature, the, the, the demeanor, but God stopped him right there before looking at any of the sons. And as we know, David was in the field. He wasn't even in the home. He, he says to Samuel, Samuel, man looks at appearances and height. I've always looked at the heart. And then other places in Scripture, you find that God judges the motives of men's hearts. So the heart is very important and very central to um, a biblical understanding of what's important to God and should be important to us. So when we look at those passages, we find out we draw certain lessons from them. As I said, 989 times, or 900, excuse me, I, I misquoted that, 938 biblical represent, uh, re- references to heart uh, or its variation in the English Standard Version. And as compared to, by the way, Uh, 881 times for the word love or one of its variants, which doesn't mean that just because it's numbered more or used more, it's more important than the concept of love. But if God chose to use that concept or that metaphor that many times, he must be trying to tell us something. Mm. And so I spent um, several years researching this whole topic, which the compilation actually was the foundation for the book, uh, Rattling a Sabre's Preparing Your Heart for Life's Battles. The last eight chapters, I actually had the opportunity to write to C.S. Lewis's home in Headington, England. I was selected as a visiting scholar, and, and so I used that time to write the last eight chapters of that book, which was all about the heart. And at the very back of it identifies all of these passages and what those passages were referring to. Only in three or four instances of all of those references was the term heart referring to the actual physical organ. Mm-hmm. All the rest of the time, it was a metaphor for something else. All right, Greg, we're going to take our first break because I need to get your autograph if you wrote eight chapters in C.S. Lewis's house. <laughs> I'm going to start there, and then when we come back, we're going to continue talking to Dr. Greg Borgon. 
We're discussing the heart today. It's the decision-making center of who you are. It's the core of who you are. And it's important that, above all, you guard your heart. Proverbs 4.23 says, Above all else, guard your heart, for from it comes the wellspring of life. We'll be right back. Faith Radio and Afternoons with Bill podcasts are available because of listener support. If you are a supporter, thank you so much. Becoming a supporter today by visiting MyFaithRadio.com. Special blessings to you this holy week. If you want to find out what's going on every day in the week, you might want to jump on the Holy Week study. You can learn more about that at myfaithradio.com. And each day focuses on exactly what happened in the Bible with detail to help you grow in your faith. And if you listen to Faith Radio Live, or maybe you're listening on demand anywhere in the world, how cool is that? and you would like to download the free Faith Radio app, it is now easier than ever. It's easier than eating ice cream. All you have to do is text the word APP to 877-933-2484, and we'll send you a link. It's safe and secure. You click on that link, and you're going to get signed up. Check it out. I think you'll like it. Dr. Greg Borgans, my guest. He's here in studio with me, and we are talking about the heart today. It is the decision-making center of your being. It's the who you are. It's where your deepest thoughts and the most profound things in your life come from, right, Greg? <laughs> Absolutely. As a matter of fact, the metaphor actually represents the core of your being. In summary, when you take a look at the uh, uh, the verses associated with it and the research that has been done on the metaphor of heart, you find out the heart uh, is the inner being of, of a person, the core and essence of, of who we are. It's the unvarnished receptacle of our being. It's the irreducible minimum of our substance. It's where the impetus for our action arises, actually. It's the repository for what we truly trust in, rely on, and cling to. It's the filter through which we process all life's decisions. It it's the lens through which we make judgments regarding our observations of the world around us. It's what moves us to action. It's worth guarding, and it really must be guarded. Mm-hmm. You are a professor, Greg, because <laughs> you use the word impetus and repository, and I, frankly, need a dictionary to keep up with you. It's the stimulus. Sometimes it's you got to dumb it down for me, though. It's just, it instigates I'm just our actions, Bill. <laughs> the repository, it's the holding tank. <laughs> <laughs> this is why I need a dictionary. All right, so there's there's several macro lessons that you learn after you take a look at these verses. If you're compulsive like I was and researched all 900 and some of those verses, you find out um, essentially five major uh, points. One is, out of the heart comes evil. The second is, God is concerned about our hearts. Mm. The third is, God desires a pure heart and motives. And the enemy, the fourth point, is the enemy doesn't want a heart to be transformed. Well, let's pause on that for a second. Yeah. Boy, isn't that the truth? Yeah. The last thing he wants is for you to become his formidable foe. Mm-hmm. 
He'd rather you be on what I would call the treadmill of sanctified behavior modification. Because what does that mean? It, it simply means that when you when you try to change who you truly are by what you do, like for instance, I'm going to read my Bible more. I'm going. Well, there there are, there are several strategies that people use to to navigate life, and they all have to do with this thing called sanctified behavior modification. In other words, you're engaged in some activities that you hope are going to somehow uh, recondition your heart just by an outward uh, discipline of your behavior. And you call that sanctified? By behavior mm-hmm. modification. Okay. So in essence, one of those techniques is putting a steel band to discipline around your heart, getting it to conform to some acceptable standard that's kept in place either by the tenacity of your will, the fellowship you keep, or the rules you obey. And so as long as those constraining influence are a part of your life, you kind of can keep it under control. Mm-hmm. But when you're in an unguarded moment, when you're away from those constraining or restraining influences and life cascades in on you, the steel band snaps and you revert back to behavior you thought you had victory over. And you said, and you, and you make that plea again, Heavenly Father, please protect me from this behavior that's bringing discredit upon you and upon me mm-hmm. and give me the strength to do it. So we tighten that band again, mm-hmm. but sooner or later it snaps and we revert back to behavior. So the second thing we do is we embrace the um, uh, procedure of more. We read our Bible more. Uh, we worship more. We fellowship more. Doesn't sound uh, bad. We pray more. No, it doesn't, does it? No. Unless... You use it as the objective and not a means to something else. Say more For about instance, that. all of these spiritual disciplines, reading in the Bible, prayer, fellowship, and worship, are meant to establish, restore, uh, renew your relationship with your Creator. It's to put you in tune and in touch with what Christ did at the cross and the fact that you've been restored to His graces, that you're now part of the adopted family of God— and so, um, you know, those, that's the objective is to go ahead and get in touch with that, to establish a deeper relationship with your creator. And so, but when they're used as the objective, in other words, I'm going to read my Bible more, that's my objective. I'm going to pray more, that's my objective. Instead of using it as a means to the objective we just described, then all of a sudden more produces less in your life. Mm, okay. Then you go to the strategy of, of adopting or embracing some saint, some individual, some process, some book that guarantees in your mind it's going to change your life. It's going to change you at the fundamental level of who you are. And so you adopt a persona. Or, and it's nothing wrong with that because Scripture says that we're to evaluate the lives of people who have preach the gospel to us and to mimic those lives as much as possible. But the fact of the matter is, is that one size doesn't fit all. If your identity is in somebody else and not in Christ, that strategy won't last long either. So the fourth and final strategy we generally adopt to manage the sin in our life is we give up. And we sit back in the last pew of the church and live in what A.W. Tozer called the misty lowlands of mediocrity because we the forgot misty to play. misty little Low, lands? Misty lowlands. Lowlands of mediocrity. Of mediocrity, Jeez. which means that we, we, we're satisfied and we say to ourselves, well, that's just the way I am. That's just the way it is with me. And so we give up. 
Mm, and so we live a m- mediocre life instead of a, a life of victory. Because you see, the strategy of the enemy at that time and all during those process of those, those outside activities we try to do to manage our, the, the sin in our life is he wants us to, he's going to continually remind us of the failures of our past. God wants to bring us to the victory of our future, and the struggle is in the present. But God is God, and Satan is not. Mm-hmm. So if he can remind you, if he can shame you, if he can somehow convince you that, well, that's just the way that you are, the, 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 what you've suffered or what you've dealt with or the sin uh, process or the, the strongholds that are in your life, that's just who you are, then you've given up. What if you've been believing that, though, for a decade or more? That's just the way I am. Yeah. Well, again, it, the only way that you change a stronghold is by relying on the Spirit of God and replacing the lie with truth. And it takes a long time to build up a habit, or in this case, you're referring to a negative mm-hmm. habit of this, this particular attitude you have about, that's just the way that I am. It's going to take some time, but it's Scripture says God has given you everything you need to live a life of godliness. It's relying on Him. It's practicing in the same way your faith and living out the truth and replacing the lie with the truth and then acting on the same direction over an extended period of time. Mm-hmm. And that's how God transforms you. I mean, Ephesians four twenty two through 24 talks about two bookend events that happen instantaneously at the moment of your conversion. Put off your old self or your old nature and put on the new nature. And what's sandwiched in between those verses is this present, ever-going, present activity of renewing your heart and mind. And that's what the sanctification process is. That's what the reconfiguration, uh, the renewal, the replacing the lie with truth and living in accordance with that truth. Because it says in John chapter 8, verse 31 and 32, if you are my disciples, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. You no longer have to be in bondage to your past or to an attitude that you've convinced yourself, well, that's just the way I'm wired. Mm-hmm. All right. You said something about four minutes ago when you were talking about that steel band yeah. that's trying to guard. Yep. But then you said you get caught in an unguarded moment. Yes. And I thought, ooh, what is that unguarded moment? Well, it might be as simple as this. If you're a businessman and you're on a trip— you're no longer near the positive influences of the faith, your church, gotcha. your friends, uh, the constraining influence, the rules you obey, the fellowship you keep. Um, so th- those are guardrails that those are, are guardrails. not, that are not up so right the guardrails now. are gone. Gotcha, okay. And so you're in a place, you, you're done with business that day, you go into your motel room, you turn on the TV, and before gotcha. you know it, you're wandering into stuff you shouldn't be looking gotcha. at. Gotcha, okay, that's helpful. And that's what I mean about that unguarded moment. And and sometimes alcohol will do that, yeah. as well as um, just uh, not paying attention to what's going on around mm-hmm. you. All right. We're going to continue talking with Dr. Greg Borgon about the heart. The heart is found 938 times in the Bible. And love is found 881 times in the Bible. That's in the ESV. So we're going to talk about it being the decision-making center and who we are, the core of of us as believers, and we'll be right back with lots more. And keep a little peace this time for you. I fail for all the love that I feel is far too great. I said. 
It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. Drive time, drive time. Let's get it started. Jump in your car. What's for dinner? It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. We're talking about the heart today in the Bible. Out of the heart comes evil. God is concerned about our hearts. God puts a desires a pure heart and motives. The enemy doesn't want your heart to be transformed. God wants our hearts to be transformed. Dr. Greg Borgon is my guest as we are continuing this lovely study on the heart. All right, Greg, where do we go? All right, so we, we've kind of got a, an idea of what the Bible is referring to with the metaphor of the heart, the repository or the center or the holding tank, if you will, of, of the essence of who we really are, what we trust and rely on and cling to, what we value, uh, the perceptual attitudes we have about life. So when you start to unwrap this metaphor of the heart by looking at all these verses, as I had done, um, and frankly, I had uh, faculty members when I was at Bethel Seminary uh, look over my research to make sure that this wasn't going to be Borgon's hobby horse, that the conclusions I was reaching were biblical mm-hmm. and were accurate and and uh, just weren't my preferences. So... Um, I'm, I'm so cognizant of, of being and so careful of teaching God's word and making sure that it, it's, uh, it, it reflects the heart of God and not the heart of me. And so consequently, uh, the research revealed that the heart is comprised of four components. They're beliefs, values, attitudes, and motives. Now, briefly stated, a belief is what you trust in, rely on, and cling to at the core of your being. It's the foundation. Uh, Hebrew scholars used to say that a belief is not a belief until you act on it. Beliefs are important because Mm -hmm. out of your beliefs, your true beliefs, your behavior will follow. So we're talking about our, our central beliefs. And oftentimes in Western culture, we have this ability to proclaim a belief system that bears absolutely no correlation with how we behave. But how we behave over time will reveal what we truly believe at the core of our being and mm-hmm. what's called the metaphors of the heart. The second thing are values. Values are the hills you're prepared to die on the lens, or excuse me, the filter through which you process all life decisions. Um, and so consequently, every decision you make, Bill, of any consequence is based on a value hold, whether you can articulate it or not. It's based on that value, a value, or a set of values that you hold. Mm-hmm. So every decision you make is processed through that filter called values. Mm-hmm. It heals you prepared to die on the principles you intend to live by yeah. um, and let's, the filter. Let's, let's try to use a value in an in a illustration somehow because I know you say what you value is so important and we're informed by God's word. That is our authority. Mm-hmm. So... If we say we value, um, let's see, help me out here. You, you, you can say you value something and it can be an aspiration and not a reality. When you say I have a value for, then it could be assumed, well, obviously then it means something to you and it should manifest itself in some sort of behavior mm-hmm. to validate the value old. I used to have students coming over from the college all the time over to the seminary because I was known as the values guy, and they'd want me to mentor them, and they'd 
share with me the values they say they held because they knew values were important to me. And I listened to them respectfully and attentively and waited till they finished. And then I said this to them, tell me about an action you took or a decision you made within the last three weeks that validates the value you say you hold. Okay. There should be some evidence of it. Yeah. So if I said I value saving money for a rainy day, and then you say, what's the last amount of money you've saved? Yeah, exactly. And I'd say, well, I haven't saved any. Yeah. That would be a reflection that although I aspire to saving money uh-huh. for a rainy day, I don't actually do it. Yeah, you may have a preference for it. You may aspire to do it, but there's no reality to it because it's not a commitment. Mm, okay. Okay, so the whole idea of values are important because your beliefs give rise to your values. The third component I found in the research was attitudes. The perceptual attitudes we have about life could be seen as actually the lens through which we view life and make sense of our observations. It's how we connect the dots. It's how we interpret our experiences. It's through a lens of worldview, which is the set of perceptual attitudes we have about life, which are built on our beliefs and our values. Okay, let's make sense of this one now. Help me. Okay. So a worldview, let's say, for instance, that your worldview consisted of a belief that says we are animals of a higher order. Okay. A value that could arise out of that is that, well, if we're animals of a higher order, then the only place we have in life is the function that we perform. And so consequently, we treat people as functionaries instead of people who have real merit in their life. In other words, they're a means to an end. Okay. So that's how the belief and value. So the worldview is a part of the part of the worldview are those beliefs plus those values. So if I want to succeed in life, if I have to step over people, I do it. Yeah, exactly. And that would be my attitude, right? Yeah, you'd be your attitude. I mean, we're going to, I think we'll have time for it. We're going to get into a family uh, of four siblings that live in a home of an alcoholic abusive father and and how they responded to that abusive father based on their beliefs, values, attitudes, and motives. Well, that'll be interesting. So that'll, that'll kind of bring it all, t- all together. Okay. All right, so the third component, as I said, is the set of perceptual attitudes we have about life. It's our worldview. It's our understanding of how life works. It's a, in other words, there are generally five questions that everybody asks or answers uh, when they espouse or, or promote a particular worldview. Any ism, Bill, like uh, capitalism, socialism, uh, postmodernism, um, are, is a worldview. So in other words, the beliefs and values that, that form that worldview um, are the, the very thing that makes you sense out of what you're observing. In other words, you're looking through that particular lens if it's like, for instance, capitalism. I mean, you're always looking at how am I going to increase the income in my life? That's my ultimate goal. And so I'm going to uh, invest. I'm going to sell a product. And you always think and see everything from a capitalistic point of view. Mm-hmm. So in any case, that, that's what we mean by a worldview. But the five questions are a sense of reality, ultimate reality. Is there a God or am I just, um, you know, uh, living from one day to the next and then I'm gone? The second is personhood. Am I an animal of higher order or have I been born in the image of God? I don't know if I understand the animal of a higher order. I've never thought of myself that way ever. 
Well, you, you see it a lot in writing. Of a higher order. In the writings of secular humanism. Okay, that's where we de- we don't. I don't understand because I don't read yeah. secular humanism. Or, or you think of yourself as simply a combination of organs and uh, systems, and that you uh, ultimately you evolved out of ooze, and so you're this combination of all of these physical pieces that make you a person. Gotcha. And so oftentimes it's devoid of any sense of having a soul or a spirit in your life. You're just an animal of a higher order yeah. because you can think I gotcha. and you can act okay, based so you, on what you think. So that's an animal of a higher order. You came, out of the, you came out of the primordial soup, but you're able to think <laughs> yeah. in ways that animals and, and can't. And remember that you came out of that soup. Oh, yeah. That's crazy. Okay. <laughs> All right. So, so far we have central beliefs. You have values set of perceptual attitudes. The last piece, when you take a look at the scriptures related to the metaphor of the heart, are motives. It's what compels you to move from thought to action. It's the actual catalyst, the stimulus that given a circumstance and an event or a happening or an encounter, uh, you're compelled to act. And that's based on everything that preceded it, your beliefs, your values, your attitudes, and now you have a motive. Like, for instance, a motive could be um, greed. Uh, so, so your action is anytime you have an opportunity to gain something, regardless of how you do it, then you're going to go for it. It's going to move you to act on it. And, and in some cases, if you don't believe in, in any kind of morality, you don't care whether you're breaking the law or not mm-hmm. by pursuing that. Another could be, as a Christian, unconditional love, which is a genuine concern for the well-being and welfare of another individual, even if they're unlovable. Because when you put that kind of love into practice, then you act in the best interest of somebody, regardless of how you feel. And so when there's somebody in need, your motive of unconditional love, which is built on a biblical belief system, in a value system, in a worldview, it'll compel you to act in their best interest when everybody else gives up on them. Because part of your worldview is that every human being is created in the image of God. So every human being has value. That So underneath the ashes of all of our bad decisions and the addictions that we might have, we see something of value there because they are created in the image of God, even though it's an ember buried underneath all of those bad decisions. And so we're going to act in their best interest regardless. Where somebody else who doesn't have that motive will take something else into consideration before they act. Well, if I go ahead and deal with this homeless issue, it's going to give me more votes, and so I'm going to uh, be voted into office or maintain my, my political position of authority. So they're used as a means to a greater end. Mm-hmm. And so what are you motivated by? Greed or pride. And so it compels you to act, and you'll use um, somebody to get there. Boy, we're complicated people, aren't we? Oh, we sure are. We sure are. Boy. So, now, what else the research revealed, Bill, is that there's a relationship between these four components. Now, it's not as linear as I'm about to describe. It's more logarithmic, or it's more like an ecosystem, uh, beliefs being the central part of it. And here, here's the relationship. Our central beliefs establish our values. Our values inform our worldview. Our worldview conditions our motives. Our motives energize our behavior. And our behavior always reflect the health of our heart over mm-hmm. time. So your central beliefs 
Not what you may be necessarily verbally proclaim, but what you truly believe at the core of your being. Your central beliefs establish your values. Your values, the filter through which you process all life decisions, um, you have your central beliefs establish your values. Your values inform your worldview. I mean, if, if I have a value for the sanctity of life, because part of my belief is that every human being is created in the image of God, I'm going to see people differently yes, you in are. my worldview than somebody who doesn't have those beliefs and values. So your central beliefs establish your values. Your values inform your worldview. Your worldview conditions your motives. When I see part of my worldview, knowing, it is, knowing that everyone's created in the image of God, I'm going to act in their best interests. So I'm going to be motivated to do that. Because they're worth saving. Mm-hmm. They're worth giving your life to. Or this particular issue is worth giving up your reputation for the rest of the world because it's the right thing to do. Central beliefs establish your values. Your values inform your worldview. Your worldview conditions your motives. Your motives energize your behavior. And your behavior over time will always reflect the condition of your heart, what's in there. I've said to people uh, repeatedly, and I, th- I think it would be true in, in just about every situation, if I had the ability to follow you around for several weeks, Bill, and you didn't know I was there, I wouldn't have to hear a word that you said. All I'd have to do is observe your behavior. And Plus, at the end of that time, I could come back and tell you with some degree of surety what you truly believed and what you truly valued. Mm-hmm. Plus just you, by watching your behavior. Plus you'd say, I can't believe you're eating at this place again. <laughs> Yeah, that could come to, to light as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right, so the behavior will always reflect the health of your heart. And here's, here's some principles about this whole issue of behavior. Greg, let's, let's pick that up at the other side of the break, sure. if okay. you're all right with that. Yep. Dr. Greg Borgon is my guest. We're talking about the heart, and it is where we make decisions, but it's also important what our motives are and our attitude and our beliefs. So we're going to continue this discussion. We'll be right back in just a minute. He entered Jerusalem like a king on Palm Sunday. By Friday, he was dead and hanging on a cross. Discover what really happened when you join Faith Radio's Reading the Bible Together Holy Week study. Walk with Jesus to the cross, carry him to the grave, and rise again in victory. Get your free study guide and access to the podcast by signing up now at MyFaithRadio.com. back with Dr. Greg Borgon, talking about the heart today. If you've missed any of this, there's a lot of great content as we discuss the behavior in our heart, and that behavior will always reflect our heart, won't it, Greg? Yes, it will. As a matter of fact, any action that brings... uh, Here's here's where the enemy... uh, This is his ploy. This is uh, one of his mechanisms he uses to get to us. Because his whole idea, it's not about us. What he wants to do is somehow impact or condition our behavior in such a way that it bears negatively on the person of God. 
because the last thing he wants is for anybody to align themselves with God because he chooses to be God himself. And so he's going to do everything he can to get us to act in a way that brings discredit upon God. So here's the point. Any action that brings dishonor upon God, that draws the world away from God, or causes others to disobey God serves the enemy's objective to bring discredit upon God. Now, our behavior is essentially a reflection of the health of our heart, as we've talked about. Our behavior is a portrait or a snapshot of what's in there. And here's the key. If our beliefs, values, attitudes, and motives are not strongly held, and if we do not allow the Spirit of God to control them, then they will be shaped by other influences, including friends, circumstances, the world, and Satan himself. So sooner or later, you come face-to-face with a decision that has to be made. And that's a proactive decision you have to take. Who's going to be put on the throne of authority over what we believe, what we value, our attitudes, and our motives? So who has that? privileged place of authority in your life. Yeah. So Is we have not? lots of options. Mm-hmm. It sure could do. be tradition, the tradition we grew up in. It could yep. be our heritage, our family culture, or our family heritage. It could be the culture in which we are immersed in, like our Western culture right now. It could be reason. It could be experience. Some ism, like I said earlier, any uh, anything that ends in the, the last three words, ISM-ism, mm-hmm. like postmodernism, socialism, capitalism, Marxism, communism, racism, secularism. Yeah, I get it. They're all worldviews. Right. Okay? But then comprised of beliefs plus values. So if you allow them to stand in the authority over the throne of your life, then it's going to produce some fairly predictable behavior. So the decision is, who am I going to allow to be in that authority over my beliefs and my values, I would advocate for Jesus Christ and his word, because it's the word that sets us free, the truth that sets us free. The word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, pierced in the vision of the soul and spirit, mm-hmm. of the joints and marrow, and the discerner of the thoughts and intents or motives of our heart. It's profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, so the man or woman of God is complete for every good work. It's inspired. Yeah. That's what needs to be an authority. Once we make that decision, our behavior then will no longer be incoherent, inconsistent, and and lack congruency. In other words, it brings a wholeness to us. It brings a focus to us, an intentionality, a direction for our life. And so that's why we want to embrace Jesus Christ not only as our Savior, but as our Lord, to understand we're under new management, Mm -hmm. that it isn't just the benefit— that are going to accrue to our account by receiving them as Savior, which are, are substantial, but it's also the obligations we incur as becoming a member of the family of God, our responsibilities and our duties. So consequently, a decision has to be made. Who's going to stand in that position of authority? Because if you don't make that decision, and if you're passive and not proactive about it, Bill, then you will be shaped by whatever you are immersing yourself in. Mm-hmm. Whatever you're seeing, whatever you're hearing, whoever you're hanging around with, the culture that you're uh, embedded in, they will shape you. And, it, and the Bible refers to that as worldliness. Yeah. And so you're going to, to, in other words, you're going to be the same color as the environment that you're resting in. 
if you're passive about this and you're not intentional about it. Mm-hmm. So if you're living an incongruent life, in other words, one day you're making decisions that are honorable, and the next day you're making decisions that are despicable, that's incongruency, that's mm-hmm. incoherence, that's inconsistency. When you decide to make Jesus and his word the authority of your life, all of a sudden it starts to bring things into alignment. It starts to help you to be more consistent with how you live and how you act and interact with the world around you. Mm-hmm. It brings that congruency that you didn't have before, that, that there's a reason for what you, you do what you do. And that's what really attracts people to a follower of Christ because in our Western culture, nobody really cares what you have to say until they observe how you live. And if you live a life of integrity and authenticity, consistency and congruency, what we just talked about, they will ultimately want to hear what you have to say, even if they disagree with you. Why? It's because they can't get past a life well lived. Mm-hmm. They can argue with your beliefs. They can um, argue with your, your, your uh, sense of, of your faith and how you live out your faith. What they can't argue with is a life well lived, or mm-hmm. one of consistency, focus, intentionality, and purpose. Because everybody wants something like that. Mm-hmm. They may not want to embrace what we do to get there, but they certainly want that. All right, Greg, let's make sure we get to this family of yep. four. Yep. All right, so how this how does this all play out? Let's assume for a second we're visiting and we're kind of observers and nobody knows we're there, <clears throat> of a home that's led by an alcoholic abusive father. And there are four siblings in that home. So the first sibling, when the father comes home, uh, at night, uh, and and again, is abusive in his language or in his behavior, he responds to his father by facing up to him, brother number one, or sibling number one. When confronted by his father, he pushes back, if not physically, then verbally. <clears throat> his motive is safety and survival. His attitude is one of intimidation, and the value feeding this mix is one in which he acts on uh, and which is no one's going to get in my way. Mm-hmm. So the central belief, feeding his value, attitude, and motive results in a posture of standing his ground, prepared to fight, uh, in uh, in a belief that in the end power rules. Okay, that's so brother one. That's brother one. Number two, this brother. Let's assume they're they're boys at this point. Um, when faced with the specter of an abusive father, this second brother responds altogether differently than the first brother. His goal is to appease his father through some form of service that might appeal to him, hopefully quench his father's anger or diminish its effects. His behavior is one of pacification. Okay. So the motive is the same as brother number one, safety and survival. Okay. Appeasement is the lens through which he tries to make sense of something he can't control. So compromise becomes the tool of choice to dissipate the force of his father's aggressive behavior. Right. So you can see how that kind of all fits together. Mm Mm-hmm. Brother number three, this brother responds to his father by fleeing. Now, the first one was fight. The second one was to pacify. This third brother, his behavior that you observe is flight. The brother responds to his father by fleeing and staying out of sight until the storm passes. Mm -hmm. His motive is the same as his two brothers, safety and survival. His attitude's different, though. His worldview sees flight as the only viable option when danger is encountered. 
Okay. So after all, isn't it better to flee and live another day than to risk emotional danger by standing up to the problem, compromising, uh, losing one's identity in the process? No one said that these responses are entirely rational, but they're certainly understandable. Now the fourth brother. This one's different. This brother is a fully committed follower of Christ whose belief system has been calibrated with God's truth. He believes, trusts, and relies on and clings to the fact that God loves the world, including his abusive father. His father was created in the image of God, and God loves him even though his despicable behavior has caused such great pain to the, to the family. He does not condone his father's behavior, but he understands that it's a result of sin and corruption. His value is God can change anyone, even my dad. So what he does is he, his behavior is he, he does an intervention and tried to bring his father around. And you can see how his behavior is different based on what he believes, what he values, his worldview, and his motive. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of how it fits together in this hypothetical situation that probably is sadly true of some people that may be even listening. Yeah, you've done a really interesting job of showing the different responses by the four brothers. And of course, the best one illustrates the power of redemption and the importance of operating from truth yes. instead of something else. That's exactly Yeah. That's Great. it, exactly. Fascinating study. And thank you so much for bringing this to our attention, walking us through this. Um, I, I, this illustration of the four brothers is really powerful. I know it speaks to a lot of people listening today because they can see themselves in the situation and go, yep, I would stand up. Nope, I would appease. Nope, I would fight or flight. There's all kinds of great illustrations here. Thank you for that. And have a wonderful Easter. God bless you and your family this Easter. Happy Easter to you too, Thank you so much. All right, we're going to take a little break, and hour two is just ahead. Pastor Robert Morgan, Robert J. Morgan, one of my uh, most favorite guests that I've had on, is going to talk about... Uh, the resurrected body, and that's going to be uh, coming up next. I will look forward to that conversation, and we'll be back in just a minute. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at myfaithradio.com.